Last week, our study in Acts ended with the apostles Peter and John, is what it said, laying hands on the people of Samaria, and they in turn received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the hands of those apostles. Manifestation. That's easy for me to say. It took, it does not say what the coming of the Holy Spirit meant, what sign it took. Then it says that Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages along the way. We'll look into whether Peter accompanied them uh, shortly, but what a group that was in Samaria while they were together. I mean, Peter by himself would have been a powerful force. I mean, we're talking Peter here. Impulsive, uh, well-spoken now, as willing to use a sword as the sword of the Spirit sometimes it it appeared to be. And then there was uh, John, as Scripture says, the one Jesus loved, the best friend in the world of God incarnate. A BFF. Oh, that's so trite. I hate that. Never mind. Finally, there was Philip. He'd been proved true by devoted service. As we said last week or the week before, the only person named in the New Testament as an evangelist, Philip the evangelist. In my mind, there seems to be at least at least three gospel-speaking Jobs, if you want to call them jobs, in Christian life. Um, There are evangelists, men like Philip, who go out into the world to inform it of the coming of God's kingdom. They're out spreading the word to people who may have never heard of Jesus before. There are preachers, teachers of the gospel, who deepen the knowledge of those seeking to be followers of Jesus, uh, diving into Scripture, uh, proving the Word of God by the teaching of Scripture. And then there are pastors, those charged with feeding and caring for the sheep of God's pasture. Now, you may be able to come up with a better description of these labors. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are. As in truth... There is overlap in all of these ministries. The the apostles, after all, embodied all three. They were the original messengers to the world of God. Uh, They were the original evangelists with Jesus out in the world. Then, we've seen them preaching in the the portico of Solomon in in the temple. They were arrested for preaching the word in the temple. Plus, They were the pastors of the world's first Christian congregation in Jerusalem. Together, first, collectively, to a small, struggling group of believers, and then to a suddenly dynamic, burgeoning church of more than 10,000 people. As for Philip, we don't know much about what all his ministry comprised after the, this next section in chat, Acts that we're going to cover. Uh, did he found a church? Was he a pastor? Maybe, but what, are, what we do know is this. Pastors are most often preachers. 
teachers. Evangelists are preachers, almost by definition. The pastoral preaching, teaching evangelist ministries have fuzzy edges with great overlap. I think we can agree on that. So with that, on the way back to Jerusalem, the ministry to the Samaritans was extraordinary with God having sent his most powerful emissaries to those hated, detested Samaritans. He sent his very best to who were considered the very worst. Our passage for today is Acts 8, 26-31, and let's read that through. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So, as we look at this passage, my first question is, where was Philip when this call came to him? Was Philip in Samaria? Was he in Jerusalem? Somewhere else? You know, I, you know that I often lament that God does not necessarily tell me what I want to know in Scripture. Rather, he tells me what I need to know. And so all of these questions are sitting out there. But let's see what we can find out here in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, and we'll pause there. The phrase angel of the Lord is used often in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, and here by Luke, and it's used for the supernatural messenger who manifested the divine presence to men. And that's a direct quote. That is not any way that I would put that, but I was thinking, how would I say that? And nah, nah, if it's not clear, you can blame the commentator that I copied it from. But it was the supernatural messenger of God who manifested the divine presence to men. In the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord usually as the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, Jesus has already been on earth and died, and we will see soon when he talks to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus that it is not as messenger angel of the Lord, he says why are you persecuting me? And Jesus identifies himself to Paul and I have no reason uh, to think that if this was Jesus that it would not have said Jesus in this. That's just an aside. Verse 26b says now, and now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So this is 
I wrote down that it was a hint of Peter's Philip's location, and it is a, lo- a, a small hint of where Philip might be. God wants him to go south to Gaza. But here's the problem. You know, it is a fact that if you're standing on the North Pole, okay, every step you take is south. Okay? Every step you take is south. It doesn't matter if you take a step towards the United States, you're going south. Or a step towards Russia, you're going south. Or a step to China. Or a step to Japan. Every step you take off the North Pole is going south. We've got a little bit of this problem here. Because Gaza was as far south as the known world went to the Israelites. Beyond that was the Arabian Peninsula that nobody ventured down into. Uh, So, if you're going to go south, you were going to go south from wherever you were. So it could have been anywhere. He could have been in Samaria. He could have been in Jerusalem. He could have been... He could have been in Greece when this call came. There's another problem with the direction south, and we'll cover that in just a little bit. There's another problem with saying go to Samaria, uh, go to uh, Gaza. Just like with the city of Samaria that we covered last week, Gaza, it was rebuilt in 57 BC, but not where it had been before. It was rebuilt in 57 BC on the seacoast, away. But the remains of old Gaza remained to be redundant and was called Old Gaza to be redundant again, okay? So Old Gaza was rebuilt, called Old Gaza. Old Gaza fell, rebuilt as New Gaza a ways away. Old Gaza was still there. The road still went through Old Gaza. And a new road was built from Jerusalem to New Gaza. So where exactly was Philip sent by the angel? Verse 26c gives the answer to not only that, but where exactly Philip was when he got the call. Verse 26c says, this is a desert place. Well, New Gaza was on the seacoast. It was really not in a desert place. A new road had been built from Jerusalem to New Gaza that also never went through desert. So, where did Philip go? Philip went to the desert Gaza. He went to the old place. It was a nearly deserted route. Nobody went that way because it was in the desert and it was hot. Now, old Gaza, the old road, like I said, was in the desert. It was the last watering stop before you hit the wastelands that led to Egypt. So if you were leaving Israel, this was the route you would take to go to Egypt, and therefore Africa. Apparently there was a spring there. You could water and get water for your trip. I drive through Arizona twice a year and other places that are pretty lonely. And you've all seen those signs, last services for 95 miles, right? In the old days when I was growing up, I think it was 
last stop for 670 miles. You know, if you didn't stop, you were really doomed. Eat here and get gas, the signs said. That's what this road was like. When you left Gaza, there was nothing until you got to Egypt. Verse 27a says, And he rose and went. Philip instantly obeyed. So, I've got a question for you. What time does he get there? Okay. There's a real answer to this. Okay. What time does he get to old Gaza? And you might say, Mike, Scripture doesn't say. Well, actually, it probably does. You're just not reading close enough. Back in verse 26, where it says, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You'll remember that I said Gaza was south. There was nothing souther than Gaza. Well, rise and go south might actually say rise and go at noon to Gaza. It's the exact same construction. Why rise and go south or rise and go at noon is the same in Greek is, I won't say it, Greek to me. Okay? But the classical construction of this sentence actually means rise and go at noon. Now, don't you like Greek? (laughs) I love Greek. Why would he be told to go at noon? Okay? Why was... Philip told, if, if in fact this is rise and go at noon, why would God be sending him into the desert of Gaza at noon? There'd be no one on the road. Well, no one but the person he's being sent to find. It was too hot for travelers. Nobody would be on the road except maybe an African. Add to that that noon is the biblical time of revelation. God sent revelations at noontime. You were awake. You hadn't been drinking, unless you were in speaking in tongues first thing in the morning. But you were awake. You hadn't been drinking. God sent his revelations at noontime. And God has an appointment for two men and a revelation from God And that's my best Sherlock Holmes, is that we figured this one out. Verse 27b says, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official. Now, now that we've got all of that Greek translation figured out, we've got more here. First, what was an Ethiopian at this time? An Ethiopian is from Africa, but not from present-day Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia back then is what we now know as Sudan. In the Old Testament, it is called Nubia. You've heard of a Nubian prince. Uh, Before that, it was called Cush, uh, where one of the sons of Abraham settled. It may be, you may remember from an earlier message that Moses married a Cushite woman. Um, and that his sister Miriam may have made the very first racist comment ever recorded for him marrying that woman. And you'll recall it didn't go well for her. Second, 
Second, so that's what an Ethiopian is. It's actually a Sudanese. The second is, what was a eunuch? Well, classically, we know that that is a uh, emasculated male. And these were traditionally put in charge of a king's harem. That was one of their traditional jobs, was to care for the harem. But they also went on to many sensitive positions in government. In fact, they were so well represented in important offices that in Greek, the word eunuch came to mean government official. Okay? So, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a eunuch or a government official? Uh, In verse 27b, Luke writes, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. So, the answer is yes. He was both. He was a government official and he was a eunuch. So, I think we've got that one cleared out without being redundant over and over again, etc., 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 right? So, here we go. And there was a Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, queen of the Ethiopians. So, the first thing to know about Candace was that that wasn't her name. Okay. That was her title. Candace was a title. Uh, the second to think, to the thing to know about Candace is she was not queen of the Ethiopians at all. She was the queen mother of the Ethiopians. Traditionally, the king of the Ethiopians, well, king implies man, but today, you know, we'll stress that the king of the Ethiopians was a man, reputed to be the child of the sun, the offspring of the sun. Therefore, he was a holy figure, and he was much too holy to do the mundane government business. He did not run the government. He was too holy for that. Instead, the queen mother, his mother, ran the government. And if your question is to me, do I think that this uh, was a scam being run by the mothers of the kings so that they got to control the country? My answer is yes, I do think it was a scam. I, um, I think they were convinced that they were that holy by their mother. Verse 37 reads, So far, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was, oh, who was in charge of all her treasure. And I'm going to say that this is not to say that Luke was wrong in anything that he has said here, okay? This is translation problems and us not understanding customs. So it is not a problem with the Bible or with Luke. This is a problem with us that we've just gone through. So, and it says... And he was, where am I, uh, in charge of all her treasure. So he was probably the second most powerful person in Ethiopia. Verse 37d says, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And this tells us something about him as well. He had come from what MacArthur, uh, John MacArthur said was the outer limits of the known world. If just as Gaza was as far south as uh, Israelites, people of Israel would go, this was, there was nothing below that. 
Ethiopia was as far west as anybody knew about in the ancient world, in Central Africa. This is, this is it. It was a five-month journey from there to get to Jerusalem. So he was truly devout. He wanted to make a trip to Jerusalem. Now, eunuchs were generally not allowed to be proselytes in Israel. They could not convert to Judaism. Definitely, if you were a eunuch from birth, you were not allowed to be a convert. Sometimes a eunuch who became a eunuch later in life could convert. Rarity. So it's possible that this was a Jewish convert, but he was probably more likely what was known as a God-fearer. Somebody uh, like Cornelius the Centurion, who feared God, loved the books, and was not a Jew. These were the people who would stand in the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the foreigners, in the temple to hear the word of God, but they were not allowed inside. That's what a God-fearer in, Ju- in Judaism was. So he was wealthy enough to afford the trip, and he was respected enough by Candace to be to be allowed to go on the trip. Besides, because probably his wealth alone did not suffice for this trip, Candace had to let him go. So he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot. Okay, here we go again. Every time I have read this, I have seen in my mind's eye Charles and Heston and Ben-Hur in a racing chariot behind a team of six horses careening around a turn in the Colosseum. Right? It's a chariot. Right? Well, disabuse yourself of that notion. Though the Greek word here can refer to a racing chariot, or a war chariot. The word chariot simply means wagon. Okay? It meant wagon. And that is probably what it was. And not drawn by horses, a team of horses, or even a horse, but probably by a single ox. It was most likely an open, uncovered wagon, because there was a Greek word for a Persian-covered carriage. And that word was not used here. For all intents and purposes, the Ethiopian was in an ox cart. Okay? An open ox cart for five months. Now, it goes on to say, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. You'll remember, of course, that Jewish liturgical reading skips the really good messianic prophecies, right? The ones that are obviously about Jesus, but not so 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, they were still reading these. Remember, Jesus just happened. The Jews, the Jewish officials did not believe in Jesus. They did not stop the Messianic prophecies. Bingo. Jesus comes and we're not reading this ever again. That's not how it worked. It fell out of favor over 
over the years, but they were still reading the Messianic prophecies about Jesus. And this court official, this Ethiopian, was wealthy enough to afford at least one book of the Bible, which was a rarity back then. People didn't own them. I was lucky lucky if a synagogue in Israel had a book of the Bible or two. A complete set of the Torah would be unusual for a synagogue. The temple, obviously, as a center of study, had them, but not so regular synagogues or even or even people, rich people, did not have copies of books. But this court official was wealthy enough to afford one, and he's reading it aloud. Now, reading aloud was a Jewish custom because it aided in memorization, just like they say that if you want to remember something, write it down. And I know that that's true because I will write something down. I will never forget it again unless it's in one of my sermons and somebody will ask me about it later and I'll say, I don't know what you're talking about, okay? But if you want to remember something, you write it down. And uh, the Jews knew that if you read out loud the Torah, you would retain more knowledge of it. So here he is, he's reading it aloud. Uh, It says he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Remembering, of course, that this was not the chariot racing in Ben-Hur, but instead a lumbering ox cart. It was not a hard thing, because I have thought of that also. How did, how did Philip catch up with that chariot that the official is in? It's sort of like, sort of like you see all the Western movies with the stagecoach charging across the desert, right? Well, they might have done that if they were being, ch- being chased by... The Indians. They also only did that. Stagecoaches only ran entering and leaving a town. It was an advertisement. Okay? It was an advertising gimmick. They did not run their stagecoaches across the country. It would kill the horses in two miles. Instead, they ran into town and they ran out of town. So, when I'm talking about the chariots and trying to remember them, it's an ox cart and... He ran and caught it. He probably only had to walk fast, okay? But Philip managed to get there. So Philip ran to him. The rest of our passage has Philip. uh, It says, hearing him reading Isaiah the prophet, he asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Okay. That's our reading for today, but there's a a question that resonates down through history is, how can I understand unless someone guides me? How is one to understand this Bible? Unless there's someone to guide guide them. I've said before that the Bible did not make sense to me even growing up in the church until I became a Christian and received the Holy Spirit. How is one supposed to understand this unless the Holy Spirit explains it to them? And in this case, God sent Philip to explain it 
to the Ethiopian. It is not enough to be an evangelist and make converts among the heathen. Uh, It's not enough to be just a pastor caring for the needs of a congregation. As I've said before, Jesus does not call us to make converts. After all, we saw that even Simon the magician believed and was baptized. But just as in uh, Jesus' parable of the uh, sower, Simon was that seed that fell on shallow soil. He sprouted up. He accepted Jesus. He sprouted up. He was excited. And soon he shriveled up and withered away. Simon was a convert. Okay? So if you're keeping track of all the people you've baptized, and I've been in churches that do, Simon would be in your plus column. Okay? You baptized him. He's a convert, got him, and gets sent into your diocese. And actually it does in some, some places. All the baptisms are gathered up and sent into the diocese so they can publish it in their newsletter. I've been in that church. Okay? So he goes in your plus column. He's a success on your monthly report to your diocese. But he is a complete failure in the kingdom of God. Simon ultimately was even worse than that. He was a hindrance to the church. It was even more. He was not for Christ. He was anti-Christ. And that's all that really means is if you're not for Christ, you're anti-Christ. Jesus did not commission us to go out and make converts of the world. Converts are too easy. Simon shows that. We are to make disciples of all the nations, and that is harder. Okay? An evangelist like Billy Graham, and I don't mean to slag on Billy Graham here, but he made a 50-year career out of flying around the world, holding huge rallies in huge coliseums, uh, make an altar call that would bring hundreds or thousands of converts to the front of the stage, and then he would get in a jet and he would fly away. And I do understand that they set up teams of people to counsel the people who came up and made a decision for Christ. I understand that fully, and would try to hook them up with churches, and I didn't mean hook them up in a bad way, I meant, but try to hook them up with churches in the area to continue the ministering to further their lives in Christ, but the evangelist, he was gone. Okay? He was gone. He left. To make a disciple, however, takes does take evangelism. And then it takes teaching through the preaching of the Word of God. And then it takes pastoral care in the life of the believer. All of us in the church have different strengths and uh, in that regard. If I have served the role of evangelist, in the case of our friend Sage, one time, it was as an inadvertent evangelist. Okay? That was not what I was doing. I was preaching a sermon. That's what I was doing. He heard it and became a Christian. But I was not serving as an evangelist. I, I've said to other scarred pastors... Especially when Bill was here and I was trying to explain our dynamic. I said, Bill's a street preacher. I'm the one who preaches to the choir. And I do not mean that derogatively to you or to me. 
Okay? My job is to further teach the people in the congregation, to explain the word, to maybe deepen your understanding of the Bible, to understand scripture more clearly, to illuminate what is not necessarily clear in God's word, which I hope we've accomplished a little bit of today, because these things tickle me. I, I hope you understand, but, but making converts is a necessary first step. Philip is called Philip the Evangelist. This is not a slight on Philip at all. But when God called him away to that hot, dusty road to old Gaza, he met a man ready to be a Christian. But he didn't just preach Christ and fly away. Okay? Instead, Philip climbed up into the man's chariot and traveled with him a ways. He climbed into the man's life and went on his journey and taught him what the book of Isaiah meant. And that is the difference between a convert and a disciple. Someone putting in the time and effort to travel with the believer on that way to God's kingdom to put in the time to teach and walk with them. Let's close in prayer.